0: Good morning, Missio. Our reading today is from Revelations chapter 3, 1 through 5. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up! Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. but we will acknowledge that name before my father and his angels.
1: Thanks, Jenna. Um, one of my favorite stories of like just the church acting like the church. We have lots of stories of the church not acting like the church. That's a thing that we're very familiar with. But every once in a while, there is a very beautiful story of the church acting like the church. And one of my favorite such stories comes from 1962, Georgia. I've told this story here before, but it's where a group of people, a group of both black and white families, decide together that they are going to form a community, a farm, and they're going to call that farm koinonia, which is the Greek word for fellowship, And at the surface, like, that's not that dramatic of a proposition, but in 1962, Georgia, it is a dramatic proposition to decide that we are going to do life together despite the differences, despite the laws, despite the cultural hostility around us, that we are going to, at great odds and at great expense, form a community of reconciled relationship together. One of the founding members of that community was a man named Clarence Jordan. And he has this translation of the New Testament that he would read and preach out of, that I think if I remember correctly is called Cotton Patch, because um, it comes from this like, context of people doing life together on a farm. And he used to translate the phrase kingdom of God to God movement, which is a thing I really like. Instead of using the phrase kingdom of God, which I think is loaded, I don't know that everybody always knows what it means, what is a kingdom, what is a king, that's not a society that we live in. And so Jordan would translate it to movement of God. And for him, that phrase evoked This journey, this act, this reality that God was on the move in the world around us. That our faith is fundamentally rooted in a God who moves, a God who acts, a God who seeks out, who heals, who is working to renew and restore the world. And it is a movement that, that God is up to, that God has always been up to, but that we as the followers of Jesus, the people of God, the church, are invited to participate into. That This thing that God is doing is not some static, stale, still thing. It is a movement. That is what we're reading in the book of Revelation. We're reading about the movement of God God's movement, his work to bring healing and renewal and restoration to the world all around us. We're reading about a community of people who are invited to participate in the renewal and the healing and the restoration that God is bringing right now. Not some future predictive, strange world, but right now, right here. Sometimes we forget that as we're reading the book of Revelation because it is confusing, very legitimately so. It's full of strange images and strange paradoxes and strange pictures. And so we make it about some future strange world. But I love the way that Clarence Jordan translates kingdom of God. And I think it's so applicable to this moment in Revelation that what we're reading in this story is about God's movement to heal and our invitation to participate. The bigger problem, I think, when reading Revelation or when talking about God's movement is not so much whether or not language is confusing or whether the word pictures are confusing, but for Jordan, what he would always say is that we miss that God is on a movement because we are not awake. Clarence Jordan would say that we need wider Christians, because God is on the move, but God's movement rarely looks like we expect it to. In the text of Revelation 3, Jesus says, I'm going to come like a thief in the night. You will not expect me. You will not see me. And that's always true without the New Testament. We never expect Jesus. Jesus appears as a poor carpenter. We don't expect that. Jesus shows up in places and cities that we don't expect. Jesus comes like a thief. Silent, quiet, and unexpected places. And so Clarence Jordan, this civil rights leader, would say, We need to be into what Jesus is doing. We need to be wide awake Christians to totally understand, see, and join in on the thing that God is doing. And Clarence Jordan, I think, really understood that you did need to be wide awake Christians and that there was a difference between wide awake Christians and sleeping Christians because Clarence Jordan helped found Koinonia Farm in Georgia, and Georgia in 1968 is similar to Georgia today. It would claim to be probably one of the most Christian places in the world. And yet, while forming Koinonia Farm, this practice of reconciliation, Koinonia Farm was firebombed by supposed Christians, it was shot by supposed Christians, it was boycotted by supposed Christians, and so Jordan had to come to a place where you're like, well, there is something different (laughs) about what we're doing versus what's being done to us by people who claim the same kind of faith. So to name that distinction, Jordan said there's sleeping Christians and there's wide awake Christians. I think a lot of us are familiar maybe with the kind of pain that Jordan is naming there, that there is Christians who are asleep versus Christians who are awake. I think this is a thing that many of us have experienced or felt very deeply, and that has led to deep pain or maybe just deep confusion. Like this week in the news, if you were paying attention to the news, then you probably saw that in Canada, in Catholic residential schools, they found... Just this week, 751 unmarked graves of First Nations people. And this is one week after having found 215 similar residential or unmarked graves at residential schools. And you're like, what is, there's a tension there if you're a follower of Jesus. These schools were run by Christians. They were held in Christian institutions. They were done in Christian names. And yet the outcome of those Christian activities was, well, in my mind, so different than what we see in the person of Jesus. And that's just a good example of what we've seen this week. Like if you've grown up in the church and you have lots of examples probably in your own life or in history that have really caused dissonance or disconcernment in you as you've looked at church history or your own American history or your own like, family's history, your own church's history, or maybe even your own history. And wondered how could we do these things? How could I participate in these things and still call myself a follower of Jesus? How do those things live together? And I think that's the question of the text today. How do those things happen together? How can you be a follower of Jesus? How can you claim to be a Christian and let your life look so asleep and so dead and so different than the movement that we believe Jesus founded? I think that's the question, that's the message of the text to this small church called Sardis. In Revelations 3, verse 1, here's the message that comes to that little church. Jesus says, I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, yet you are in fact dead. Dead. I think life in Sardis would have actually felt pretty similar. I mean, their first century Roman community, but as similar as a first century Roman community can be to our own, (laughs) I think they would have been pretty similar. Sardis was a very wealthy city. There was a gold vein that ran in the river that provided wealth. They had a thriving textile industry. And it was a well-defended city. It was surrounded by mountains. And it had very rarely been sieged or experienced any kind of military conflict, except one time the Persian king Cyrus snuck over the walls like a thief and invaded the city. It's like really it's only military defeat. Other than that, it had been very secure, and it had been very strong, and it had deep reason to be confident in its wealth. And this letter plays off of that sense of confidence, security, comfortability. Jesus goes on to say in verse 2, Wake up and strengthen what you have left. You are teetering on the brink of death, for I have found that your works are far from complete in the eyes of my God. The issue for the church at Sardis is that their faith is devoid of what the text says is works. It's devoid of practice, is maybe another way of saving it. We've talked about this before, but I would define faith, I think the Bible would define faith this way too, faith as not just belief, sometimes we make it just belief, but I would say that faith is belief, but also practice. That biblical faith is belief plus practice. And by practice, I don't mean perfection, I don't mean that you have a list of things that you're trying to accomplish, more that it is practice is what happens when belief gets into your body and then moves into the world around you. It's like when you love somebody, it can stay an idea, but for it to be love and real, it has to do something. It moves to trust, it moves to proximity, it moves to develop relationships. You can study all you want to about swimming, but you've never been swimming until you swim, right? Like there is something that moves beyond belief in something to practice. And faith is like that. Faith is you have belief, and that belief is compelling to you, and that belief means something to you, and that belief curates something in you, and it has to lead to something, to some kind of practice, to some kind of actualization, to some kind of embodiment of that belief. Faith is more than knowing the right things. It is living into and out of those beliefs. One uh, New Testament scholar, a guy named Matthew Bates, says it really well. Embodied loyalty to the cosmic king of the universe is what faith is. In Clarence Jordan, the civil rights leader we talked about at the beginning, I really love his definition of faith. He says this, Now faith is the turning of dreams into deeds. It is betting your life on unseen realities. You believe something so substantially that you are willing to bet something on it to develop a community that's going to be persecuted, to act upon the conviction that you hold. So belief or faith is, in this sense, belief plus practice. It's when the two merge together, when our love actually produces relationship and we actually get into the pool. But I think one of the things that happens to us most commonly as people of faith is that practice gets subtracted from belief. And something else replaces it. Maybe most commonly, and I think what happens in Sardis, but I think what happens maybe in the American church as well, is that practice gets subtracted from belief, and in its stead comes performance. And our faith becomes about performative religious acts. Oh, I went to Sunday service, I raised my hands, I worshipped loudly, I have the exterior aesthetic of a follower of Jesus. Maybe I have the right emotions of a follower of Jesus. I contain the kind of hype that a follower of Jesus should. But it's really fundamentally about the performance of belief. This is what belief looks like. And I'm going to perform that belief in such a way that you see it, that you know it, that you can acknowledge it, that it looks like belief. It's like a marriage that posts very beautiful social media images but is just so <laughs> jacked up in real life. Right? We know that one. Where the performance is so beautiful but there is nothing of substance at the very bottom. That is, faith minus practice, but replaced with performance. James, who is the half-brother of Jesus, says it this way in the text. James 3, verse 17, in the same way, faith is dead when it does not result in faithful activity. Faith is dead when it does not result in some faithful activity. Sounds similar to what Jesus says to the church in Sardis. He says, Someone might claim that you have faith and I have action, but how can I see your faith apart from your actions? Instead, I will show you my faith by putting into practice faithful action. Because faith is dead without action. It's not faith. It's just belief, performative belief. Now, there's another thing that we can do also. We can subtract practice and replace it with performance. I think the other thing that we can do is we can subtract practice and replace it with right thinking. Like, if I just know the right ideas about being a follower of Jesus, if my theology is really solid, if I can argue with you about what it means to be a Christian, if I can produce really appropriate like theological boundaries around my faith, and I know the right ideas, I read the right books, and that's what faith is. But James, in this same passage that I just read, had something very interesting to say about this. In verse 19 and 20, James goes on to say this, It's good that you believe that God is one. Ha, that's so funny that the text includes that. (laughs) Like, that's very weird that James was like, (laughs) Ha. You know that people did that back then, you know? Ha, even the demons believe this and they tremble with fear. Are you so slow? Do you need to be shown that faith without actions has no value at all. This is a marvelous statement. He's like, you believe the right things? Yeah, so does the worst thing in the world. Super impressive. Do you think that the thing that matters in this story is that you have the right list of beliefs, the right dogma, the right orthodoxy, the right theological acumen? You think that's what matters? Wild. He says faith without actions has no Value hmm. I think the real issue here is like why does faith without actions have no value? because I think in our modern context we've done this we've made faith minus practice plus performance is one iteration of this, and on the other side we have faith minus. Practice plus right thinking is the other iteration. And we make this kind of what Christianity is in the United States. And here is why I think that this is such a problematic thing for us to do and why I think James and Jesus have such deep issue with it, is that I think belief without practice quite literally kills your faith. Because when it is performative, it centers the self too much. On one hand, it produces pride, and pride kills faith because it makes you the center of the story and not Jesus. And that's not what it means to have faith. But I think even more likely than that is that when we make performance the outward demonstration of our faith, it is too much weight for us to carry. It's too heavy to hold a burden of performing our belief in a way that we and other people can see, and I think at some point, most of us get to a place where we're like it's not worth carrying. It does nothing for me. It doesn't feel healing. It doesn't seem to like lead to life in the world around me. It's not leading to justice in the world around me. I'm watching my relationships crumble. It's like. Nothing Producing any real life. And so, why would I carry this weight of performance? I'll just let it go. It's too heavy to hold, to look a certain way, to act a certain way, to perform a certain way, to maintain a certain kind of hype. How do you hold that as soon as life gets difficult? On the other side, when it's belief plus right thinking, I think what happens is that our faith becomes totally abstract. There's a very famous philosopher named Richard Rorty. Not Richard Rohr, who was quoted earlier. Richard Rorty, very different white guy. (laughs) And Richard Rorty is a a high advocate of deconstruction. So I hold that in your head just as in this. And he says this, which I think is a really brilliant statement. Disengagement from practice produces theoretical hallucinations, meaning abstraction. Your faith becomes totally pointless, totally worthless. There's nothing to hold on to, nothing to grasp, nothing to get your mind around. And I think, similarly to performance, what this does is two things. One, it leads to arrogance. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians A, that knowledge by itself puffs up, where love builds up. So it leads to arrogance. It makes you the center of the story again. But on the other hand, faith that is abstracted, belief that is abstracted from real people, from real lives, from real world, from actual justice, from actual healing, it becomes abstract. And I think it's like holding a dream that never gets any legs. And eventually, in my experience, eventually, that starts to lead to cynicism. Hope that never gets actualized leads to cynicism. Belief that's never lived leads to cynicism. A desire for love, for example, that is never reciprocated, never experienced, tends to lead to cynicism about the whole notion of love altogether. How many people have you known to give up on relationships, to give up on marriages or friendships, or even the pursuit of relationships, friendships, marriages, or significant others because they have grown cynical at the concept itself? Belief without action tends to lead to abstraction, and I think abstraction held too long leads to cynicism and rejection. There's nothing to give your belief life. To quote Clarence Jordan again, There's no deeds to make the dreams real. And this kills faith. All throughout the biblical narrative, faith is described in really like organic or like active metaphors. So movement is one relationship is another, like a living thing is another, like a tree, a fig tree, a vine. Jesus' followers were originally called followers of the way. And I think these languages, these metaphors, they speak to the reality that our faith needs to be tended to, cared for like a garden or a relationship, or if it's a movement, it needs to be moved, walked with. Because without care, living things tend to die. Without care, without action, without practice, relationships tend to wither. Without motion, movement becomes still. Our faith needs to be tended with practice because it is a living thing, like a relationship, or like a garden, or like a movement. And when it is not tended with practice, it metastasizes and dies. There's nothing to keep it fruitful, nothing to keep it giving life, nothing to care for it. So what does it mean to practice faith? Well, James is really helpful here. James at the beginning of his letter says this in verse 22 and 25. It says you must be doers of the word, not only hearers who mislead themselves. Those who hear but don't do the word are like those who look at their faces in a mirror. They look at themselves, walk away, and immediately they forget what they are like. But there are those who study the perfect law, this is laws, God's teachings the law of freedom, and they continue to do it. What do they continue to do? Well, James answers in verse 27. What do they do? True devotion, true worship is this, the kind that is pure and faultless before God the Father is this, to care for the orphans and the widows in their difficulties and to keep the world from contaminating us. Jesus would say something very similar. The command I give to you is to love one another. the practice of Christian belief is to love those around you. Now there is internal practices like soul care practices. We were led in one of those earlier today. But I don't think that's the issue for Sardis. I honestly, I don't know that that's really the chief issue even for us. I think that in Sardis, their faith had become dead because Jesus says your works were not complete. There's something missing. And I think the thing that he's saying is missing is that you do not love those around you. But Missio, we tend to our faith. We give life to our faith. We care for our faith. We curate our faith when we care for those around us. We tend to our faith when our hands are dirty in the work of real love, when we care for the orphan or the widow or the unsheltered person, when we love those around us. Sardis had stopped doing that. Their works were incomplete. They knew the right things. They performed the right deeds and the right religious activities. But James and Jesus both say it is worthless. It is dead faith. They look at themselves in a mirror and then forget what it's like. They have a reputation for being alive, but you are in fact dead. Your faith is a zombie. And I think this is where so many of us live. I think it's actually the faith that many of us have inherited from our traditions and from the communities and cultures around us. We inherited a faith or heard of a faith or learned a faith that was performance-driven, that if you performed the right religious actions, then you were being faithful. Or it was head-right knowledge-driven, that if you knew the right things, then you were being a Christian. I think that's for many of us the faith that we learned, the faith that we read about, the faith that we inherited. But it wasn't a faith of embodied belief, of practice. I think many of us have seen that faith, the one that we inherited of performance or of right thinking. We've seen it, and we know it that it is a dead and dying thing that calls itself faith, but is empty and worthless. And I think many of us have even felt it within ourselves, that like zombie faith. I think it's why so many of us deconstruct and leave the church. Why would we not if we carry a weight of performance or of simply right thinking? I think we want more than a dead and dying faith that merely looks alive. So, Monsieur, what if we tended our faith with works of love? What if we tended our faith with works of love? What if we completed the works that Jesus accuses the church and Sardis of not completing? What if we tended our faith with works of love? I I think that there's a few things that might happen. I think, one, I think we would genuinely start to come alive. think that our faith would find a source of joy and a gift of vibrancy. If we began to tend the faith with a work of love, that if we actually could get some dirt on our hands, if we could actually get some flesh on the bones of our faith, so to say, if we could actually begin to embody this thing that for so many of us has stayed up here, abstracted, disconnected, theoretical, I think it would begin to unwind some of our cynicism about what is love and about what is the power of Jesus in the world and what is the spirit up to in the world. Those things don't make any sense if we're not in the work of love. So I think if we began to tend our own faith with works of love, I think that we would find ourselves coming back to life. And I also think that we would have something of substance to offer the world around us. A faith that looks alive. A faith that is actually alive. Not a zombified, barely alive thing, but a resurrected thing. So, mister, I just want to leave you with one final question, which is this. This week, how can you tend your faith with works of love? how can you tend your faith with a work of love this week? What practice can you engage in that is a work of love that might reinstill some vibrancy in you, that might help you get your hands on this thing we call belief? Like what might actually help you practice this faith this week? Would you hold that question and would you bring it to the table? We gather at the table every single week because this space is a place that symbolizes that merging of belief and practice. We believe that God has welcomed us somewhere, and so we respond in action. But it's also a symbol of how Jesus practices. Jesus is present, Jesus makes space for others. Jesus extends himself to us. And so as we receive that and act upon that, practice that belief, it also shapes in us an imagination for how we might do the same, how we might become a people who practice the way of Jesus and live a living faith. Let's let's pray. Jesus, would you help us wake up today? Wake up to the good news of you, the reality of you, your love extended to us, your like hospitality opening a way for us to be at the table with you. Would that wake us up? Would that disrupt us? Would that disorient us enough for us to see the truth of you? And then would it help us join the movement of you? to put practice to this thing that we believe, to put practice to this thing that we come and sing about, that we hear about, that we tell stories about, that maybe we even study during the week, would we wake up and put flesh to it, put our hands in the dirt, put practice to it this week? Because I think if we did, we might experience you. We might find some life. To be honest, we just might be surprised by what happens. God be with us. Wake us up. Help us join you. In your name we pray. Amen. Miss you, when you're ready, invite you to the table. We're still using like sealed communion elements for COVID safety, so you can come and take communion at the table. Spend as much time as you want praying there with a friend or a family member, or you can grab an element and go back to your seats and pray there, however you would like to engage. And then Continue worshiping with us.